You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church Livonia. Welcome, and it's great to be together today. If we haven't met, my name's Alex, and I want to say welcome. Welcome to the second week of our series, Why God? This is a series that's coming on the heels of our series in the book of Proverbs that we finished up just before Easter. And Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, these are what we call the wisdom books of the Bible. And they ask life's big questions. They ask questions like, what's the meaning of life and how do we live it well? Is God just? Is God good? And is he trustworthy? They ask, what do we do with life's contradictions? And so on. And so we kicked off this series talking about the need to wrestle and not run from our whys. And this week, we're going to be talking about the book of Job. And next week, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes. The book of Job is famous for Job's suffering. And it's a book filled with him asking, why God? Now, the problem of unjust suffering is a deeply human concern. It's one that we all wrestle with at some point in our lives. I remember being in eighth or ninth grade and beginning to wrestle with just, you know, the questions of my faith, the the normal process of going through doubt to make my faith my own and not just my parents. And so, you know, I'm in eighth or ninth grade and I'm a Christian, but mostly just because my parents are at that point. And, you know, I get into conversations with friends about, you know, they're, why they're Buddhist or why they're Muslim or why they're an atheist or they're an agnostic. And we start talking about God and death and life and its meaning. And in those conversations, inevitably, I would get put on my heels and on the defensive as my friends would ask questions like, well, what about people who have never heard of God? Is he going to send them to hell? Right? Or ask questions like, what about all the good people in the world that horrible things happen to? If God is so good, why do those things happen? Or inevitably there was the, well, my grandma, my uncle, my aunt, my mom, my dad, my fill in the blank had this horrible circumstance happen to them. If God is real, why would he do that to them? I can't believe in a God that would let bad things happen to good people. And at the root of each of these questions that my friends and I would would debate about and talk about in orchestra class were really the questions, is God good? Is God just? And can I trust him in the midst of my pain? Well, most of us have had some kind of personal experience with these questions, right? Someone in our life who's experienced a tragedy, a loss, or a problem, they simply haven't done anything to deserve. Maybe someone we know who died too young, or a beautiful person with a beautiful heart who has a chronic illness, or uh, a kind friend with abusive parents. Maybe you know a child with a terminal disease. We've experienced these things personally, and we've experienced them corporately and socially. This kind of unjust suffering on a more macro level. There are people convicted of crimes they didn't commit. I've got a friend who was convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and it's been an ongoing burden in his life. Sometimes those folks spend decades unjustly imprisoned. There are people who are put to death on death row and are capital punishment and are later found to be innocent. There are people who are corrupt and they've been democratically elected, but they use that power and influence for themselves, not for the good of the people that elected them. And not to mention just our national history is filled with suffering and injustice that was undeserved. I mean, it's only been 103 years since women were allowed to vote. 
and it's only been 59 years since the end of lawful segregation with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So be it from life experience, be it from history, be it from news channels, be it from social media, or just philosophical conversations with your friends like me. All of us have seen and wrestled with the issue of unjust human suffering. And its reality raises several questions. It raises questions like, is God real? And if so, is God good? Is God just? And is God trustworthy? Like I said, these are deeply human questions and they are essential, essential to the human experience. Now, there's a kind of Christian that wants to hide from these questions. But we're not going to do that. And we don't need to do that. Like we talked about last week, we got to press in and wrestle, not run away from our whys. Because we trust that if we meet God in them, it's going to end in a blessing and not a curse. The Bible does not shy away from these questions, does not shy away from this problem. And instead, it wrestles with it, sometimes devoting whole books to the answers. Job is one such book. Now, the, the <clears throat> that doesn't mean that Job hits on every single uh, version of unjust human suffering. But it does wrestle with the question of God's justice in the midst of suffering. And the question that the book of Job is simply seeking to answer is simply this. Is God a just judge? Is God a just judge? Now, in order to answer this question, my goal today is to give a summary of the book of Job as a whole, which is going to be quite the task in our next 30 minutes together. So I'm going to give a little less illustration and personal anecdote from my own life. Um, so that we can, in the, in the, for the sake of time and the sake of focusing on the scriptures, get through as much of the book as possible. But before I begin, I, I will say this just on a personal note. Um, what I'm about to share today from this book radically has changed my life. It's changed the way I see myself. It's changed the way I see God. It's changed the way I see his word. And it has impacted me on a profound level. And my hope today is that it would transform you in a similar way. So that being said, we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to jump in. <clears throat> the book of Job is 42 chapters and is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible. The author's unclear and there's been debate about, is this a historical book or is it simply a myth? Meaning it's a fiction, but it communicates true spiritual truths, real things about the real world, just not with real characters. I happen to believe that it's historical, not a myth. I think there's a good argument for it being a myth, and there are certainly things that seem mythical about it, but there's also these, these details that would be totally unnecessary if it were only myth. So for that reason, I think it's true, I think it's fact, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The book has been organized differently by different people, but the way that I think is going to be most helpful to organize this book, and, and our format for today, is these four sections here. Section one is the introduction to Job, to God, to the Satan, and to suffering. Section two is the debate with Job's friends about whether or not God is just. Section three is God's response to this debate. And section four is the conclusion and restoration of Job. So we're going to look at each section and read a portion of scripture from each section, but I'm going to do a lot of summarizing again, just so we can get an idea of the picture the whole book is painting. My small group is currently doing an in-depth Bible study on this book and guys close your ears for the end because I want to save it for our next group. <laughs> but if you're not reading through this book or haven't read through this book, I'd highly encourage you to. So the book in section one simply opens with this. 
There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, important words, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a festival in the house of each one on his day, and he would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we find Job is this blameless and upright man, meaning that he is in right standing with God, and there is nothing that he has done to incur any kind of punishment for sin. Now, Job is a person who's clearly experiencing God's favor. He has a large and flourishing family, lots of wealth, and lots of influence. Additionally, we get an insight into who Job is and how he thinks in verse 5. It's easy to miss, but I want to zoom in on this detail. It says this, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So we find that Job is so concerned with righteousness that he makes sacrifices to atone for sins, not that his children have committed, but that his children might have committed. He's covering his bases because he is afraid of God's judgment. He's very vigilant in maintaining right standing before God, so there's not even a possibility that his good life would somehow go away. The scene changes, and we get introduced to things from heaven's point of view. And this is what it says. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? I mean, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In this second scene, we've been introduced to two other characters in our narrative, God and Satan. Now, it's really important to know about this. Satan is not a name, just like Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some of you are like, what? It's true. It's a title, not a name. So Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, and Messiah was a title given to God's anointed Redeemer. In this same way, Satan is not a name. Satan is a title, and it's a title that means adversary or accuser. As in like the prosecutor in a courtroom, the attorney that accuses the defendant of a crime. That is how the devil is described. And this leads us to one of the first key parallels in this book. Job and Satan see God the same way as a judge. Job in chapter 1 is sacrificing just in case his children have sinned. And he's careful to remain blameless himself. He is driven by his fear of God's judgment as punishment for any sins he or his children may have committed. 
Now, in the spiritual realm, Satan is not asked to accuse Job or to attack him or to try to get him to suffer or to fall. God simply says how proud he is of Job, that Job is blameless. And Satan immediately tells God, oh yeah, it's only because you protect and bless him. If you let me take those things away, he'll fall just like everybody else. And what's interesting here that's important to note, Satan doesn't care about hurting Job. Satan cares about hurting God. And God cares about Job, so Satan's going to hurt Job to hurt God. Interesting point, interesting point. So God is confident that Job's righteousness isn't based on blessing and wealth, and that he's going to remain blameless. And this launches us into the core problem of this book. After Satan and God speak, God allows Satan to attack Job, and the next day, tragedy strikes Job. Job loses all of his oxen, which are used to grow vegetables. All of his sheep, which are used for wool, for meat, and for dairy. All of his camels, which are used for transportation. And all of his ten children. And Job is devastated. But he does not curse the Lord. And scripture is clear to say that in all this he remained blameless. Job did nothing to deserve this. And even in the midst of it, he remains blameless. Satan doesn't like this. His plan didn't work. He got proved wrong by Job. So the next time he's called before God, he asks God to let him take a strike at Job's health. He's convinced that if God will let him attack Job's health, Job will sin. Satan says, skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So here we find Job at the bottom of the pit. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. And even his relationship with his wife is understandably on the rocks. He's lost everything, and he's the bottom of his pit of suffering. This is when section two of the book begins. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was was. So imagine this with me. You hear your friend has lost his house, his job, his fortune, and his children all in one day. And then on top of that, he developed debilitating sores over his whole body. You're moved with compassion as you set out on a long journey, multiple days of travel to go visit him. And when you arrive, he is so marred physically by this sickness, you can't even really recognize him. And he's literally sitting in the ashes of his former life while he is oozing pus and sorrow. The heaviness of his suffering is so intense, there's nothing to say 
and everyone just sits in silence for a whole week. I just want to ask you, what would you be thinking in that place if you were Job's friend? What would you be feeling? How would you respond to him? After a week of silence, Job finally breaks it. And he says, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job is in a dark place. He refuses to curse God. So instead he curses himself, his own existence. He doesn't want to kill himself but he doesn't want to be alive anymore either. He says, what I dreaded has happened to me, calling back to him, trying to avoid this through all of his sacrifices. Again, if you were Job's friend, how would you respond to that? From this point on, a debate begins, and that debate has a rhythm, a pattern to it. So Job spoke first, and then in a moment, his friend Eliphaz is going to respond, and Job's going to respond to Eliphaz. And then Bildad's going to respond, and Job's going to respond to Bildad. And then Zophar's going to respond, and Job's going to respond to Zophar. And this cycle repeats itself three times throughout the course of the book, each time getting more intense, more attacking, more personal, and more hurtful than the last. Eliphaz responds to Job's cry for death by saying this. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Do you see what's happening here? Kind of like roundabout in a poetic way. But clearly, Eliphaz just told Job, the reason Job is suffering is because he sinned in some way. And that his depth of suffering is God's correction for his sinfulness. Wow, that is quite the thing to tell a man that just lost all of his children. The reason your kids died is because you sinned in some way. And if you just confess, God will restore you. Job replies none too happy about this. He says, now you have proven to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Teach me, and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as, wet, as wind? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. This triggers Bildad, who jumps into the fray. And Bildad says, how long will you say such things? Your words are blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. This is really intense. Eliphaz and Bildad are on the same page telling Job the reason he lost his wealth, the reason he lost his children, the reason he has nothing now, the reason he's even lost his health is because of some sin that he's not confessing. What a harsh thing to say. And Job responds, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? 
Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. I loathe my very life. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me? You get the idea. From chapters 3 to 38, Job and his friends go back and forth over and over and over again. Job cries out to his judge for justice and defends his innocence to his friends, while his friends try to convince Job in more and more intense and hurtful and forceful and attacking ways that the reason he's suffering is because of some hidden sin. This shows us how Job and his friends see God, and it shows us how they see the world. They believe that sin causes suffering, and to be sure that's true. Pick your sin. You don't have to look very far. Lust, adultery, murder, envy, lying. You go, oh yeah, that does cause suffering. I can totally see that. But they don't just think that sin causes suffering. They think only sin causes suffering. Meaning that all suffering is deserved because the result of someone's sin. Because God, in his justice, wouldn't let people suffer who don't deserve it. Think about what this means. It means there's no room for compassion, there's no room for empathy, there's no room for mystery, and there's no room for the creation itself to be fallen from sin. It's a system of thinking about God in our lives that is much more like karma than it is like Christ. As much as the book of Job is a story about suffering and God's justice, it's also a story about friends who don't listen well. As soon as Job begins to lament and he says something they disagree with, they try to prove him wrong, being unwilling to accept his pain until it fits their theology. And to be sure, right belief is important. But here's the catch. They're not humble in what they think and believe because their theology ends up being wrong in the end and they get rebuked by God for it. So as I said, this arguing goes on for 35 chapters until finally God shows up. After all these people speak on his behalf, making accusations and claims about his goodness, his trustworthiness, his justice, and his actions, he finally speaks for himself. And this is what he says. This is section three of the book. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? What was the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts channels for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loose the Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their season or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in a thicket, who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? 
Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawns? Do you count the months till they bear? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Look at the behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. God finally responds to Job. Finally responds to this great debate about whether or not he's a just judge. And for all of Job's suffering, I want us to notice something. After all this debate about suffering and justice, I want to look at some of the common words and themes that Job and his friends say over and over again. And then I want to look at some of the ones that God says. So let, let's see some of the common words and themes Job and his friends use. Innocent. Evil. Charges. Argument. Just. Unjust. Correct. Plead. Guilt. Penalty. Oppress. Hearing. Mediator. Mercy. Judge. Do you see the theme here? I think in their minds, as they're having this debate, their philosophical setting is a courtroom where they're making their case before God, hoping that he's a just judge and he's not a corrupt one. Now let's contrast that with some of the themes that come up as God responds to Job. He says things like plans, power, creating, making, knowing, seeing, satisfying, providing giving, guiding, and singing. God says nothing about judgment or courtrooms, nothing about sacrifices or mediators, or any other kind of judicial courtroom language other than simply acknowledging that Job is questioning his justice. All that God talks about are the earth and the weather and the lightning and the birds and the ox and the donkey and the ostrich and the leopard and the behemoth and like, what? God, have you not been listening? Have you not been listening to this whole conversation? You finally have a chance to set the record straight. You have a chance to speak for yourself, to answer the question, are you a just judge? And you respond with like a National Geographic special. Like your holiness, your justice, your very integrity are being called into question. Don't you have anything else to say? It's like he's having an entirely different conversation than everyone else in this book. Why would he do that? What's the point of finally responding and not addressing any of the accusations Job has brought forward? Well, friends, I don't think what we're seeing here is God ignoring Job. I think what we're seeing here is the difference between the way that Job and Satan see God versus the way that God sees himself. To Job and Satan, God is a judge. And the only question is whether or not he's a just one whether or not he's a good one. But God sees himself very differently. God sees himself not as judge, but as creator, as maker, as father. You see, the role of judge was placed by God on, or placed by us on God. We made him judge when we sinned at the fall. And that moment God became our judge. But that role is not his original role with us. It had a beginning. And when Jesus returns, God will no longer be our judge. That role will have an end. The role of judge is a temporary role, but the role of father, of creator, of maker, 
That is God's original, primary, and eternal role in our relationship with him. The book of Job is about suffering, to be sure. But it's about much more than that. The book of Job is about how Job meets God in his suffering. And how Job stops seeing God the way Satan sees God. And how Job begins to see God the way the birds see God. The way the wind sees God. The way the lightning sees God. The way that God sees himself. Job's question throughout the whole book is, God, are you a just judge? And God's response is, Job, I am not just a judge. I am the maker of all things, and I take care of everything I make. If God is our father before he's our judge, then maybe the reason God brought Job up, even in the beginning, to Satan, wasn't because he was trying to get Job in trouble, but because he's just a proud dad. You know, I remember the first time I realized this, I just started to cry. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I've been seeing you through the eyes of the devil. I'm being rebuked by the very birds that are singing outside of my window. You see, I'd grown up in a conservative Christian culture, and part of that had an intensity to it, like Job's sacrificing, an intensity around sin management. So I thought I was terrible. I thought I was a constant disappointment. I, thought I, just, I, was, I was taught I was constantly sinning and there was no escape from it. And I just even wonder, like, why fight my sins if I'm just always doing them without even realizing it? And it created this relationship between the Lord and I that was characterized by constant disappointment, not by love and joy. And when I realized that all of my intensity around voiding sin when I realized that what that had taught me was to view God like the devil does, I was crushed. And I knew that that was the greater sin. Not all the little things I was trying to manage, but that, oh my God, I see you like the devil sees you. And not like the birds see you. Not like the wind sees you. Not like the snow sees you. Not like the stars see you. And I just asked the Lord to forgive me. And I just asked him to show me what the cross meant. That I didn't need to make the grade. I just needed to understand that in the cross, I'm made whole and I'm reconciled. That God is not my judge in the cross anymore because he sees Jesus and is satisfied. This encounter changed me and it changed Job. And this is how Job responds in the last section of our book. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours has been thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Job knew God's power, but not his presence. He had seen God page to page, but not face to face. Job knew theology, but he didn't know the one that theology was about. He had lost God's presence in debates about God's character. And Job's suffering wasn't an indictment on his character, but on his perspective. And you want to know the infuriating thing, too is the book never answers the question about human suffering. But when Job sees God face to face, 
he stops asking it. Something about that encounter made him not need to know the answer anymore. When we see, when he sees God face to face, he sees everything he needs to know. After this, God asks Job to sacrifice again, but this time not for sins that might have been committed, but for the way that his friends misrepresented God, sins that were committed. So Job and his friends learn something new together and are reconciled. And the book ends with God restoring Job's wealth, his health, and his children to twice as much as he had before. And friends, when we move from seeing God the way Satan sees God to seeing God the way the rain sees God, the way the wind sees God, and the way the eagle sees God, the way the trees see God, that is truly a blessing that is twice as rich as the life we had before. As we close, I think there are those of us here who know God, who love him, but when we think of him, we think of the eyes of a judge not the love of a father. We see the hammer of a judge, not the hands of a father. And it becomes a spiritual vessel in which we put our voices of our inner critics and our own self-hatred. And the result is that it distorts the truths of God into something Satan uses to beat us instead of something the Holy Spirit uses to mature us. And if that's you today, I want you to simply pray this prayer regularly. The prayer is this. Lord, help me see you the way you see you. And help me see me the way you see me. Lord, help me see you the way you see you. And help me see me the way you see me. And my prayer is that as you pray that, the Lord would just heal your view of him and of yourself. Second, there are those of us here who have walked away from or never received Jesus' forgiveness for our sins. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sins are what makes God our judge. And they separate us from him. And while they remain, we stand under God's judgment. And Job knows this. This is why he cries out, If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Jesus is that mediator. He's the one who satisfies God's justice so that we might, re- we might <clears throat> return to God as Father instead of as judge. Without believing in and accepting the sacrifices of Jesus, we stand under judgment. But when we receive Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins, we are made whole and right before God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, We implore you on Christ's behalf. I implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God, because God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, God does not want to be your judge. He wants to be your father. He has opened the door through the sacrifice of Jesus. And this morning, he's asking you to walk through it. And so if you're here and you just feel that lump in your throat, that drop in your gut, that tension, and you know that you've been living far from God, I want to invite you to pray with me right now so that he might welcome you home as a father. Lord, I've sinned. And Lord, I've seen you falsely. God, I just ask that you would forgive me through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
And I pray, Lord, that as he rose from the dead and as you blessed Job twice as much as he had before, Lord, that you would radically change me and that as I turn to you as father, my life would become twice as rich as anything I had before. Lord, I pray you'd heal my perspective, that you would change my heart from the inside out. Lord, show me how to follow you in your way of life. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us via our digital connection card so we can walk alongside you.